0: welcome everyone to All Things Psychology. Thank you so much for tuning in. In this podcast, we're going to dive deep into the topic of psychology. We will discuss its history and how it evolved into the discipline we know today. We will cover famous pioneers of psychology and their contributions to the field, as well as major topics in modern psychology and contemporary research. If you're interested in getting a better understanding of what psychology is and does, and how it came to be, and stay tuned. In the first episode, I already told you that the word psychology is derived from the two Greek words psyche and logia, which means study of the soul. The Greeks not only gave the name to this discipline, they were also one of the first civilizations to engage in a philosophical study of psychology. And this is where our story of ancient civilizations continues, in ancient Greece. Before we start, I'd just like to give a disclaimer that I will not go into details about every Greek philosopher. As your name suggests, the people we will cover here were first and foremost philosophers. They had some pretty interesting and important ideas, which also influenced early psychological thoughts. And those are the thoughts we will focus on. If you want to know more about ancient philosophers and their lives, I encourage you to check out Stephen West's podcast Philosophize This. He goes into much more detail and covers every major, important philosopher in depth. For this episode, we will only focus on Socrates, his student Plato, and his student Aristotle, as well as Epicurus and the Stoics. Begin our history of Greek philosophers with Socrates. Socrates lived from about 470 BC to 399 BC, and is one of the founders of Western philosophy and the first Western moral philosopher. Socrates shifted philosophy from the study of nature to the study of humans. His influence was in fact so huge that philosophers before him are called pre-Socratics. He didn't write down or publish any of his philosophies, so everything we know about him, we know from his students, especially Plato, who will have an extra segment on this episode. Because of that, it is not clear which of Socrates' thoughts were actually his, and which were Plato's. What we do know, however, is that Socrates developed the Socratic method. Maybe you've heard of it. The Socratic method is, and I'm citing from Wikipedia here, (laughs) A form of collaborative, argumentative dialogue between individuals based on asking and answering questions to stimulate critical thinking and draw out ideas and underlying assumptions. It is actually quite scientific because it is a way to eliminate hypotheses by identifying and eliminating those that lead to contradictions and in turn finding better ones. Socrates believed that eudaimonia, which means happiness or well-being, motivates all human action. For him, virtue and knowledge are linked to eudaimonia. On top of that, he saw all virtues as a form of knowledge. So all virtues are one. Socrates was intellectualist in that he believed that human actions are guided by cognitive power to comprehend what they desire, while diminishing the role of impulses. The hallmark of Socratic moral philosophy is that the intellect is the mean to live a good life. This diminishes and places aside irrational beliefs or passions. The famous quote, I know that I know nothing, which is often attributed to Socrates, might not actually be a quote from him. I still think it is an important role to play in science today, only by acknowledging that we do not have the absolute truth and that we know little of what can be known Are we able to seek further knowledge, to widen our perspectives and wisdom, and to change society and the world we live in for the better? Our next person of interest is Plato, one of Socrates' students. Plato was born somewhere between 428 423 BC, and he died either in 348 or 347 BC. He is the founder of the Academy, the first institution of higher learning in the Western world. Plato was one of the most important and influential individuals in human history, as well as a central figure in the history of ancient Greek and Western philosophy. Plato denies the reality of the material world. Instead, he sees it as only a copy of the real world. According to his theory of forms, there are two worlds, the visible world and an invisible world. The visible world is the one we live in. It consists of concrete objects that can be experienced and apprehended by the senses, and which is constantly changing. The invisible world is unchanging and consists of forms or abstract objects, only apprehended by pure reason. For Plato, only the forms are real, and they exist outside of time and space. They represent types of things, properties, patterns and relations to which we refer as objects. They are universals, immutable, timeless, changeless and provide definitions and a standard against which all instances are measured. Plato also had a lot to say about the soul. For him, the soul is immortal and independent from the body. The soul exists before the body forms and continues to exist after the body is gone. The body functions, if you will, as a temporary home for the soul. When the body dies, the soul lives on in the presence of the gods until it incarnates again. During this time in a host body, the soul mediates between a world of forms or ideas and a world of the senses. Together with the physical factors and through itself, It generates perceptions, cognitions, opinions, effects, emotions and urges and produces physical effects such as growth, external properties and dissolution of body matter. It also brings to bear its cognitive and thinking abilities and experiences pleasure and pain through the host body. According to Plato, the soul is divided into three parts. If you remember last episode. This idea of a polypsychic model of the self is similar to that of ancient Egyptians. Plato's soul is composed of a desiring, a courageous, and a reasonable part, which are in conflict with each other. The harmony is sought under the supremacy of reason. Maybe you have heard of the parable with the horse wagon. Reason functions as a charioteer. Its job is to steer the two very different horses, will and desire, and subdue desire in order to lead the soul to knowledge. Desire is thereby oriented toward sense perception. It satisfies physical lusts such as eating, drinking, and procreation, or strives for means to satisfy such lusts. The will, on the other hand, is a courageous part of the soul, produces opinions, recognizes what is beautiful and good, and makes evaluative judgments about its own person and others. Both are to be subordinated to the desires in order to tame its and satiability the courageous in order to bring to fruition its positive qualities, such as prudent zeal, gentleness, meekness, respect and love of mankind, as against the negative ones, such as false zeal, distrust and envy. The reasonable is manifested in a desire to learn and recognize the truth, in a scientific pursuit. In Plato's original Doctrine of the Soul, parts of the soul form an immortal unity. In his later work Timaeus, however, he regards the lower parts of the soul and the associated effects, drives and negative emotions as mortal admixtures of the immortal soul of reason. For Plato, independent movement is a defining characteristic of the soul. Because of that, he understands animals and celestial bodies as animate. In the Timaeus, he also thinks of plants as having a soul. He believes that the cosmos itself is reason, which has its seat in the world's soul. The world soul is a force that moves itself and everything else. It is immanent in a world and surrounds it at the same time. Since it participates in everything through its different components, it is able to perceive and recognize everything. Its essence is equal to that of human reason. Therefore, there is agreement between the soul of humans and that of the cosmos. In his epistemology, Plato clearly differentiates between belief without knowledge on the one hand and true knowledge on the other. For him, sensory perceptions generate opinions and are not sufficient to attain truth. The soul only gets access to truth and knowledge through thinking that has emancipated itself from sensory perception. In his ethics, Plato states that the good is a supreme form, existing beyond being. He believes that nobody does bad things on purpose. Plato is of the opinion that to know what is good results from doing what is good, and that knowledge is virtue, and virtue is innate and cannot be learned. Plato also differentiates between eudaimonia and pleasure. Plato considers eudaimonia to be desirable. He does not reject pleasure but he classifies it as a low good and he does not ascribe any value to the pleasurable sensations that result from the satisfaction of bodily needs when reason is in charge within the soul which is the case with a philosophical way of life pleasure can be experienced in an unobjectionable way Next we will take a closer look at Aristotle, who lived from 384 BC to 347 BC. He was Plato's most famous student. He was in fact so famous that for a long time he was only referred to as a philosopher. He founded or has influenced many countless disciplines, including philosophy of science, natural philosophy, logic, biology, physics and ethics. Aristotle distinguishes two types of arguments, which still play a role in science today. Deduction and Induction. A deduction consists of premises or assumptions and a conclusion. The conclusion follows from the premises and cannot be false if the premises are true. It is a conclusion from the general to the particular. Induction is the exact opposite. It is a conclusion from the particular to the general. Aristotle also developed syllogisms. A syllogism is a type of deduction consisting of exactly two premises and one conclusion. Premises and conclusion together have exactly three different terms. The premises have exactly one term in common, which does not occur in a conclusion. That can look like this. Premise 1 Every bee is an insect. Premise 2 Insects have six legs. Conclusion, Every bee has six legs. Or another example. Premise 1 No books are boring premise two, Harry Potter is a book, conclusion, Harry Potter is not boring. Aristotle distinguishes four levels of knowledge, knowledge, experience, memory, and perception. He claims that all living beings have perception, that most living beings have some kind of memory, that some animals and humans have experiences, and only humans have knowledge. He further describes how knowledge arises. Perception gives rise to memory, and memory gives rise to experience through the bundling of memory contents. Experience is mere factual knowledge. Knowledge differs from experience in that it is general and stating not only a fact, but also the reason for a fact. Regarding the dispute between materialism and dualism, whether body and soul are identical with each other or not, Aristotle is of the opinion that the question is wrongly posed. The question whether body and soul are identical is nonsensical to him, because states of the soul are always also states of the body, but Aristotle denies an identity of body and soul as well as the immortality of the soul. He further distinguishes between form and matter and postulates that the soul relates to the body like form to matter. But form and matter of a single thing are not two different objects, no, it's not its parts, but aspects of this very single thing. Aristotle's soul consists of three aspects, similar to Plato, which work together or oppose each other. The vegetative part, the appetitive part, and the rational part. The vegetative part regulates the body's growth and nutrition. The appetitive part regulates the movements, sensations, and perceptions, as well as hunger and emotions. It consists of five senses, the sense of touch, the sense of taste, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, the sense of sight. The rational part is the center of all higher cognitive abilities. Here resides what Aristotle believes to be unique to humans, the reason thought. Reason is that by which the soul thinks and makes assumptions. Reason is incorporeal, but bodily bound, since it depends on conceptions. Imaginations form the material of acts of thought. They are conserved sense of perceptions. The corresponding imaginative faculty is dependent on sense impressions. Imagination is assigned to the perceptual faculties. Happiness or eudaimonia and virtue are central concepts in Aristotle's ethics. Aristotle argues that the goal of all intentional actions is happiness, realized in a good life. The formation of virtue is, in his view, essential for achieving this goal. In order to attain the state of excellence, one must have, according to the two parts of a soul, a virtues of mind and b virtues of character. Among the virtues of mind, some relate to the knowledge of immutables or the production of objects. Prudence alone is related to action, as a virtue with the goal of a good life. It is necessary, along with the virtues of character, to be able to act in concrete decision-making situations with regard to the good life. In a realm of human actions, unlike in the sciences, there is no proof, and to be wise in this regard also requires experience. The function of prudence is to choose the middle. Character virtues are attitudes, for which it is characteristic that they can be praised and rebuked. They are formed through education and habituation. Here, Aristotle distinguishes five emotions. Fear or courage, pleasure or displeasure, anger, shame and honor. Their corresponding virtues are bravery, prudence, gentleness, sensitivity and big-mindedness. Emotions coupled with behaviors are the basis for virtues. The middle is to have appropriate emotions and to act appropriately accordingly. The virtue of gentleness, for example, is the middle between weakness and irascibility. In the context of the analysis of the good life, Aristotle distinguishes three forms of life that pursue different goals. The pleasure life, with pleasure as its goal, the political life, with honor as its goal, and the theoretical life, with knowledge as its goal. Aristotle rejects the life of pleasure in the sense of a mere satisfaction of desires, But he believes that pleasure is still necessary to live a good life. He argues for theoretical life as the best form of life. The best activity thought in a definition of happiness is that of a theorist who researches and gains new knowledge because it means leisure, serves no other purpose, actuates the best in a person, and has the best objects of knowledge. Aristotle considers the operation of the virtues of mind and the virtues of character as essential elements to happiness. Next, we will have a look on Epicurus, who lived from 341 BC to 270 BC. His epistemology is as follows. Since perception is for him the only criterion of truth, it is also the criterion for the conclusions about such things which are not directly perceived, if only these conclusions do not contradict the indications of perception. The core of Epicurus' ethics is to increase and stabilize the joy of life by enjoying everything, every day, possibly every moment, as Horace's motto says, Carpe Diem, cease the day. For this purpose, it is necessary to avoid and, if necessary, to overcome all impairments of the peace of mind that can arise from desires, fear, and pain. The art of the Epicurean wise man is to constantly savor the pleasures of life. The logic of the Epicurean doctrine becomes clear, among other things, in a justification of the central position of pleasure and the joy of life. According to this, the early childhood sensation, which is not yet shaped by any social conditioning, indicates the natural direction of human striving, seeking pleasure and, if necessary, loudly demanding it and avoiding displeasure. For Epicurus, fear pain and desires are three great cliffs that must be circumnavigated in order for a lasting love of life and peace of mind to prevail. According to Epicurus, humans have basic needs like eating, drinking and shelter. He considers sexual desire to be of natural origin but dispensable. Luxury needs are unreasonable and harmful dependencies. For Epicurus, friendship was the type of interpersonal relationship most conducive to the joy of existence. However, Epicurus did not think much of marriage and offspring. Probably he regarded them as a possible source of disturbance of the peace of mind. The exercise of political offices also seemed to him to be wrong because it endangered the peace of mind. Lastly, we come to the Stoics. Two famous Stoics you probably have heard about were Seneca and Marcus Aurelius. The Stoa is one of the most influential philosophical doctrines in Western history. A special characteristic of Stoic philosophy is the cosmological way of looking at the world, which is directed towards wholeness and from which a universal principle prevailing in all natural phenomena and natural contexts emerges. For the Stoic as an individual, It is a matter of recognizing and filling his place in this order by learning to accept his lot through the practice of emotional self-control and striving for wisdom with the help of serenity and peace of mind. Logos, for Stoics, has a meaning of both language and reason. Logic then includes on the one hand the formal rules of reasoning and correct argumentation and, on the other, those parts of language in which mental operations are expressed. To know something for the Stoa is to be able to assert a proposition that is demonstrably true. According to the Stoic doctrine of cognition, only what is immediately obvious after methodically correct use of the criterion, which means means of decision, is recognized as true. Only a self-controlled person arrives at correct perceptions, while a person guided by instincts and feelings is incapable of grasping the truth and acting accordingly. Classification of man as a part and functional element of the nature administered by the Logos is, from a Stoic point of view, his primary destiny. With spirit and thinking ability, he has instruments at his disposal, which allow him to participate in the divine Logos and can lead him to wisdom as the highest good and epitome of happy or fortunate existence. The prerequisite for this is a process of self-knowledge and the acquisition of goal-oriented behaviors, habits, and attitudes. One's own reason serves as a guide. The instinct for self-preservation and a striving for self-improvement function as motivators. Only a lifelong effort for self-formation, which also withstands the challenges of fate and fellow human environment, creates prospects for the peace of mind of the stoic sage. A prerequisite for this is a pronounced control of effects, which should lead to freedom from passions to self-sufficiency and steadfastness. Now we've arrived at the end of the episode of All Things Psychology, where we touched on the philosophies of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and the Stoics. Next week, we will take a look at ancient China and how the thinkers and philosophers there have influenced psychological thought. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you left a review and subscribed to never miss an episode. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at All Things Psychology underscore podcast to join in on the conversation and get some accompanying material to each episode. Thanks so much for listening. Stay curious, stay healthy, and see you next time. Bye.